Hi, welcome to valuationpodcast.com, a podcast and video series about all things related to business and valuation. My name is Melissa Gregg, and I provide online divorce mediation and valuation services in St. Louis, Missouri. Today, we will discuss the unimpeachable rebuttal with C. Zachary Myers, a CVA and CPA in Winfield, West Virginia. He is a testifying expert and has been qualified as an expert in the forensic accounting, taxation, business valuation, and pension valuation fields, specifically in civil, marital, and criminal litigation. Welcome, Zach. How are you? I am great. Thanks for having me again. Oh, awesome. So the last time you were here, we talked about the unimpeachable regular report. And this comes in as a rebuttal report. Um, And we're talking specifically about that. A lot of the same things, but some nuances and what we have to deal with. So I think if we start with some of the basics, so can we start to just describe like, what is a rebuttal report? Like we know what it is, but what is a rebuttal report specifically when you have a valuation expert or another testifying expert in a litigation setting? That's a good distinguishing characteristic because today I'm going to be talking about just expert witness work in general. You know, about half of my practice is uh, you know, personal injury, commercial damages, things like that. And the other half consists of valuation in some way, shape, or form. And that's also in litigation. Uh, a rebuttal, uh, generally speaking, you know, whenever you're in court, you have sometimes two different experts hired by either side of the case. And so depending upon maybe who puts out a report first, it is common that the opposing counsel or opposing side will hire their own expert to rebut your work or you will be hired to rebut someone else's work. And those expert reports get put on the record generally, and you have to deal with a number of nuances with that when you're talking about either someone else's report or having to deal with what they're saying about your report, which can really, you know, the first time you read an expert report written by someone else about your expert report is shocking. I think in the the article I I write that I'm clutching my pearls because literally some of the stuff that you'll hear from opposing experts, it's not neutral. It's not unimpeachable. It's literally just throwing everything in the kitchen sink at you. And I think with the pandemic, you have to deal with this a lot more because people are really thirsty. People are really trying to just really try to either take shots at your credibility and what have you, and that's that's what we're seeing a lot of. So what, what a rebuttal is, is effectively sometimes like a, a college paper size report just trashing your what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think that, you know, even some additional clarification is like you can have an opinion, right? So you would be the testifying expert. Um, you could be a fact witness, but we'd rarely do that. That's just talking about the stuff, you know, facts. Um, you can be a rebuttal witness. You could be a rebuttal expert, which means you just come in and say, Hey, sorry, Zach, you suck. This is how bad you are. And, or you could be a testifying expert that provides a rebuttal, which a lot of times we're just doing that within testimony is providing a rebuttal. But I totally agree with you. The rebuttals that I've seen recently are almost attacking Um, And I think that they're from my professional and and I'm sure you have an opinion too. my professional opinion is that we can provide rebuttal reports and critique another expert's opinion 
in a less personal way and a more professional way. And maybe that's what you're not seeing a very professional manner. <laughs> Is that what you're? The, to some extent, yeah. I mean, you know, what you're dealing with is uh, a lot of times, and some people don't do this on purpose, but, you know, when you're talking about that, that reticular activation system where basically they're playing on your, your fears or your values. So what you'll see is a rebuttal that will either take shots at the fears as far as, you know, this person doesn't know what they're talking about, or this person has made a, a glaring uh, error in professional judgment, which really there isn't much of such a thing there's usually more than one ways to calculate something but someone will write an expert report saying well they'll mischaracterize an aspect of it and say well this is wrong when actually it's just a difference of professional opinion or they'll try to um, say that you didn't consider this that and the other um, i've literally had experts say that i didn't consider something that only their client can provide and has yet to provide on the record um, <laughs> so right. literally you'll, you'll see a lot of disingenuous dissertations which is something that you know i'm seeing quite a bit and you have to deal with those it, you know it, it, it the first response is to fire right back at them hmm. that doesn't necessarily help because you can muddy the waters with that you can also get the you know a judge or the clerks or whoever's reading these reports you know when they see a bunch of just garbage like Jerry Springer type stuff going on where everybody's just bashing everybody else. Sometimes they tune everything out. Mm -hmm. uh, so what you want to do in your, your expert rebuttals or having, you'll see these expert rebuttals that do nothing but just, sometimes they don't even provide an opinion. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, that, that's the first type of rebuttal in the, the article I wrote, the unimpeachable rebuttal. I talk about the different types of rebuttals that you see and how to deal with them. And mm -hmm. so, you know, a lot of times people will play on, on the fears of either the judge or the reader of the report that this other expert's not credible, he has no value, doesn't know what he's talking about, he or she, you know, is just uh, uh, speculating, things like that. Those are the fears. So you have to sort of reemphasize the value of your report and kind of sort of call these other experts out for the behavior that they're doing as opposed to getting into this street fight on paper. Yeah. No, I think that I think that that is really important because when I've seen rebuttal reports that have come in for my reports, you know, anytime that I'm issuing a rebuttal um, and I am trying to be very careful in how I critique it um, mm -hmm. because there is gray, right? I mean, valuation is some black and white and then there's some gray. But I think that, you know, part of this article that you actually wrote an entire article about in a series and, and people can look at it on um, Quick Read Buzz and, and things like that with uh, the NACBA. But like what, you know, when we're experts and we're going in to do these reports, what are some of the things that can start to help us make a rebuttal report unimpeachable? And like, what does that mean really in the context of what we do? Like, is why is it even important, you know? Sure, well, unimpeachable neutrality is the most important virtue or characteristic that an expert can show. Um, that's what you're there for. You're, you're hired by counsel from time to time, but at the same time, you, you have to be unbiased. You have to have integrity, you have to be neutral. Um, you have to give consideration to, you know, multiple things and not just sort of proffer the speculative 
or minutia. Um, when you're dealing with building a report, that you're talking about building assumptions. So whether someone is rebutting your report or you're the first expert to issue a report, you always need to focus on very, you know, um, solid, neutral assumptions that you can support based on facts and evidence that are specific to this particular case and sometimes peer data. Um, so if you're writing a report yourself, you know, focusing on government statistics, peer data, let the numbers tell the story for the most part as far as don't try to create a work of fiction. That's the best thing you can do, and you can probably survive any rebuttal if you do that. But if you're rebutting someone else's work, you want to be as professional as possible in that. Okay, You're not just saying that he's an idiot or she's an idiot or he doesn't know what they're talking about. And that's very important. And I don't know, and you probably dealt with this too sometimes, whether it's a, you know, if it's a female, I've seen people trash people to try to um, make the female experts not look as smart or mm -hmm. somebody looks different or is young. You're going to see a lot of this. And it's important that you can handle yourself accordingly and not just get mad and throw a fit and, you know, make the person who is rebutting your work, you know, basically look like they know what they're talking about because you're sitting here upset and doing, you know, firing it right back at them. Oftentimes, those experts, they may not even be intend to put out an opinion. They may just be writing this, and they're gonna—they're never intended to go up on the stand. They're just trying to write this to trash your work or to make you say something or get a soundbite that is not going to help your situation. So whenever you get these rebuttals, you'll see there's a couple common characteristics I talk about. Um, you have the all problems, no solution rebuttal, where they basically pick apart each and every one of your assumptions literally and don't and that's fine there's nothing wrong with that but there's often more than one way to calculate and so when someone says that oh this is wrong that is wrong you know and you're using generally accepted methodologies um, data peer data that's generally used by you know the rest of your field and they still trash it um, that can be a problem and hard to deal with and so you have to call the behavior out for exactly what it is and don't necessarily get emotional and it's hard not to do it because you know sometimes you read a report that's written about you to rebut your work and you're like what the heck? this guy's an idiot can't do that you have to stay neutral uh, another uh, example that I talk about is the glaring error in professional judgment which kind of gets upon that what I was just saying where there's more than one way to calculate something most of the time so when someone says he's made an egregious error or she's, she's she's made a huge erroneous mistake that's material to the damages or the value something like that you'll see this shock value sort of stuff and you have to deal with that as professionally as you can and the best one of the best ways to do it is just to speak directly to what they're doing <laughs> just like a, dealing with like a psychopath you just directly speak directly to what exactly they are doing and call it out as opposed to getting into a cat fight um, and you'll see a couple other types. I talk about the complicated cornucopia, which is they just try to confuse things by using lengthy, uh, highly educated sounding words to try to make themselves sound better and make you look like you don't know what you're talking about, even though you did exactly what you were supposed to do by taking something complicated and simplifying it. They try to do the opposite. They try to take something that, that's complicated and complicate it further and then make it look like you don't know what you're talking about. Um, you have to deal with that. Don't get into a rebuttal battle if that happens where you try to out 
uh, syllable the other expert and use bigger words and more technical stuff. Um, but basically, you'll see experts either playing upon your fears or your values. They'll either try to downplay the value that this expert report brings to the table. And that kind of goes into the fear that an, a judge or a reader of a report is going to have. They're going to question, well, what if this guy doesn't know what he's talking about? What if Melissa Gregg doesn't know what she's talking about? Mm-hmm. And you have to really sort of re-emphasize your, your, your foundational uh, key points. It starts off with a good report, first and foremost. But even if you're rebutting someone else's work, you can do it in a professional way. And that's not easy to do, but it's a must especially nowadays, because everything's transparent. Your stuff's being recorded, whether on Zoom or something else. Um, if you act a fool, they will see you on camera. And it will be. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting because we just did <clears throat> like an advanced mediation training. And there was one whole section, which I have, I've really loved this. I worked for a few, um, other valuation people that were very grammatically correct and, and had grammar books like on their desktop at any time. So um, I like this, but there, but part of what they talked about is there are inflammatory words, right? So I can say that Zach is a nice guy, or I can say Zach is a narcissist and, you know, and, and, and even to the point of like, oh, the revenues dramatically increased or did the revenues increase over time? You know, like those two could two, could be the same language for the same events, but one of them seems like it dramatically happened and the other is just like, oh, it just sort of increased. And so I think that we get into some of that even flagrant language because attorneys religiously use flagrant language in their filings, I think that experts really have to tend to bring it back and say, you know what, I'm not going to do that flagrant language. I'm going to just state it as it is, right? And that's a piece of it. I think it's also strategy. You know, if you're going to be an expert witness, it's like anything, you really need to build a wall around yourself and your professional uh, work. And you have to say that people are going to come for you in a, a million different ways. But the reality is it doesn't have to do with you as a person. And it's very hard to do that. <laughs> and you have to practice over time because they'll still kind of get you. You know, we we uh, were just talking before this started and uh, an attorney accused me of lying on the stand. And I was just like, you know what, you're, you're pressing some buttons right now. Cause I didn't lie. And I did meet with the client and da, 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 da. And, and I said, what proof do you need? You know, there's a way to say, you know, you're being offensive. I mean, I literally, I was like, you're being offensive at this point. Would you like to see my calendar so that I could prove that I had that meaning? And oh, no, 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 no. You know, or I could be like, you are so offensive. I can't believe it. You know? And as an expert, you literally have to tone everything down, which means your written word as well, right? I mean, that's this is all a piece of it. Um, Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but I think, and it's it's not funny, really, because 
it's serious, but it, it almost is comical because it's the same thing as like, I tell my kids, like you can't fight with a pacifist, right? You can't, if I'm going to stand in peace and you're going to fight at some point, you're going to get tired of fighting or you're just going to look like a jerk to everybody around because you continue to bash on the person that's not reciprocating that action. And I think in, in written form or in testimony, that's where we have to get to. That's a piece of it, if you will. Um, but in your article, you also talk about some rebuttal techniques that you see are biggest red flags. Because what I think people don't understand is that valuation people are going to see through some of this stuff. The attorneys might be confused. The clients might get confused, but other professionals. But what do you see as some big red flags in a, in a report or a technique? Sure. Well, one of the, one of the things, and this maybe speaks more to damages, but it also goes to valuation. Uh, when you see a complete lack of an opinion, and you also is is sort of juxtaposed to inflammatory language. There's a you know even in the NACVA standards, for example, you know you have review reports, and you may or may not provide your own opinion of value. There's nothing wrong with that, but if you see inflammatory language coupled with someone who just picks apart everything in a disingenuous way, but doesn't provide any sort of, you know, a way to fix it or better way. And, and all they're doing is either attacking a specific assumption per se. You got to be careful with that because there's a professional way to do that. And there's a very unprofessional way to do it. And you, you, you'll see that they don't have any opinion whatsoever. All they do is talk about the problems and have no solution. Mm -hmm. um, you also see where they'll say that, you know, the the expert doesn't. They'll say that you didn't consider something. That's the soundbite that all attorneys try to get in your depositions and even at trial. They want to get you to say, oh well, yeah, I didn't think about that. I didn't bring. I didn't factor that into my calculation. And then the next step will be to attack the reliability or something like that. Mm -hmm. and so, you know, as I said earlier, the best way to mitigate that anything you write. One, you need to just try to have a sound basis. Even your presentation can be uh, the type of presentation that facilitates the trier of fact with being able to make, uh, to, to understand the facts and evidence better, which is what we're here to do, and be able to maybe even adjust as they need to. I know with my damage reports, I provide a cumulative annual total for my damages. So if they want, if the judge and jury want to adjust, the uh, damage period to a shorter period for whatever reason, based on the full body of evidence, they can. I'll provide you with uh, damages to age 67, but if you want to look at something else, because something, some medical thing comes in that shortens their life expectancy and the work life expectancy, well, then you can take that into consideration. So you, you can protect yourself by writing and building your assumptions in a, a neutral, unbiased, and sort of uh, facilitating way but whenever someone attacks your stuff, that's when you will come back with, you know, well, here's why I did this. Here's why I selected this assumption. And that you'll, you'll be able to mitigate these, some of these issues. Um, but, uh, but generally, the flags are not hard to see. They're hard to control your reaction to some of this stuff. I mean, literally, that's, it's kind of a weird situation because most people don't have, you know, PhDs writing 
you know, thick expert reports trashing them. And so, like you said earlier, you have to not take it personally. And you have to have a little bit of, have to keep a little bit of humor about it. You have to sort of try to, you know, not take anything personal and try your best to not project or reflect the same negative energy in your report that they're projecting. Because Yeah. <clears throat> well, because I've had it happen on the stand more often than not. And I think that people need to understand that judges are there and they want control over the decision-making process. And I've had it happen more often than not that an attorney will do something, right? And then they'll come, the judge will say, I will decide if I agree with Melissa's position or Zach's position, I will decide based on the testimony, based on the facts, based on the evidence, based on the reports, right? And in my mind, that's where, again, if you can stand in your own sort of knowledge, right? And not be, because it is strategy to try to get you to shake, right? Him telling me that I was lying was a strategy because we were five hours into a seven hour deposition. So it was time for him to go for the jugular because I would have been tired and exhausted and then come for him. And, you know, there was even a strategy of how far I came for him. Right. Mm -hmm. And how I could correct him but not, you know what I mean? It's true. You know, like I couldn't go after him, but I had to stake kind of li like a line, like you're close to the line, buddy, but I'm not going to cross it. So if you want to come over here, you know, that's fine. But the judges see that. So if you have even an attorney that's trying to cross-examine you and instigate it's the same situation. If you continue to just testify to what you're there for and not really get emotional, they're like, oh, maybe that expert is neutral because they're just talking about the stuff. They're not like, listen, judge, it's this is right. Like, this is better than his. Zach is wrong. You know, like then we start to look and sound like the parties who are very emotionally charged because of the event. Right. And so I think that that's where. Um, you know, we can, I've even had attorneys where after, you know, they did the whole deposition, they're like, Hey, Melissa, how's it going? Oh yeah. Okay. Good. You know, like we know these people. Um, but th there's a couple other things that you may talk about, which is, you know, when an expert uses a technique that could potentially backfire. So what could something like that be that they may have some good intention, but it didn't work out? Well, more often than not, sometimes they, they won't have a good intention. But even though, even when they do have good intentions, it can backfire. Um, you know, sometimes an ex, I've had experts that claim that I failed to use something that only they their client can provide or, or that their side can provide. That's going to fail for you because you can't do, you just can't work with that. Um, that. That just doesn't sound good on its face. It's a contradictory sort of uh, argument. Um, it also can come across very badly just to, to trash someone, to, to trash their necessarily, especially someone that, you know, is qualified and, you know, just as qualified as you are. You can, you can make that argument. That's fine. And it happens all the time. But 
it can it can backfire. It can also backfire the attorneys. Your own attorney can actually do things that can backfire as well. And so even when you're, you know, you talked about earlier about the the cross-examination uh, and the trickery and the, the sort of trying to antagonize you and get you to do something sort of strategies. Well, even sometimes your attorney who is an advocate for, they have an ethical duty to advocate for their client and there's nothing wrong with that. That's one, one of the best things about America. You have that. But even your attorney who is rendering some direct uh, uh, questions to you can kind of step take it a step too far. You have to kind of tone it back and say, well, no, that's not what I'm saying. Um, you know, I'm, I'm here to try to present a neutral and biased opinion. That's, I'm, I'm, that's a little bit beyond what I'm, I'm comfortable saying. But what I will say is, you know, this, 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 and this, which are all going to be based on factual things or my analysis, my, my opinion uh, within the realms of what I can speak to. And so you always have to keep that neutral mindset because it can backfire. And sometimes mm -hmm. even just adopting something that a, um, an attorney asks you to adopt, that happens all the time, but does it make any sense? <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And so you'll, you'll get that from time to time, and you'll, you'll see in the rebuttals, uh, a lot of people shoot themselves in the foot because they literally say, well, this person uses national data, and that's not specific to the, to the case. They, they should have used state data, which is clearly something that maybe their attorney who hired them told them to say. It's like, well, okay, you can hang your hat on that, but I've already thought about that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and I think that some of it is also the nuances of the words, right? So recently, I think I was in another testimony. I don't even remember. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll always ask you like, well, you didn't provide all three valuation methods. Didn't you violate the standards? And I was like, well we have to consider, but we don't have to utilize. And he's, oh, well, where does it say that? You know, and again, if I come at it, because it is, it is a, a nuance in the nomenclature, right? It, it, that's it. And, and they didn't know that attorney didn't know their expert didn't prep them or they didn't ask their expert because not all experts prep the attorneys and help the attorney, you know, they just do their work and then show up or whatever. Um, but those those types of things, um, I could sort of get aggravated with the the attorney and be like, um, no, I'm only supposed to consider it. I don't need to do any. Again, that's going to make me look rude, even though he was wrong, right? And so there's a way that if I respond like, hey, dumbass, why did you think that? As opposed to like, oh, well, that's easy oh no, I totally understand where you were going there. So actually we just have to consider it, but we don't have to explain, you know, like that even feels different. And that's part of being an expert is like, and I think people get frustrated all the time because attorneys get these things confused, but we're still there to educate them, even if they're on the other side sometimes. So I think some of that goes and, and you've kind of talked about some of those things, like what stands out in a neutral report that, and compare it to something that comes outside of the professional standards, because professional standards are a place that attorneys always want to go. 
So what would look different? Like where would they see something that um, was different than violating the standards? Yeah, attorneys do always try to go to that, you know, try to be the, the chair of the standards board and be on the stand. And the best thing they could possibly do is to say that you didn't follow standards. So, yes, they try to attack that. Um, I would make a point that I wanted to interject, but I wanted to let you finish what you were saying earlier because it was, it was right on point. You have to kill them with kindness. Mm -hmm. They will try their best to get you to be upset, to look irrational, to look emotional. Um, sort of, you know, the first instance of controlling yourself is in the reports, first and foremost, in your, the way that you handle rebuttal or rebut yourself. Uh, the way that you handle in a deposition is also one of the first sort of, um, for lack of a better word, trial and error, where they try to see what, how you react whenever they ask you a question a certain type of way, or whenever they attack your credibility, or whether they say something or you know, one of the best techniques that attorneys use is you, they'll ask you a question in a deposition, and then you'll say your answer, and they'll just look at you like, that's not, you're not answering my question. When you just did answer the question fully <laughs> and honestly. Um, and so you have to learn to sort of control yourself. But mm -hmm. in a neutral, in a neutral report, uh, effectively, what you do is you kind of mitigate some of that. Because you're not only taking, and this is especially true in a damages case, when you're, you could literally, in a worst case scenario, uh, I see people are advocates either pushing the damage numbers up or down. Okay, and that's not going to work. I mean, it may work and there's some people that try to make a good living off of that, but uh, over time, that's just going to get you in trouble. Um, so you want to try to be neutral, have, you know, consideration of as, of, as many of the factors that, that you can and the known or knowable possible scenarios that could occur and not completely just discredit some some particular scenario just because your attorney told you to mm -hmm. um, you can also give credence to in a deposition for example when they ask you about an alternative way to calculate something instead of saying well no that way is stupid you can basically say well yeah there's you could do it that way and that's another generally accepted uh, way of doing whatever it is you're doing. Um, but this is the way that I do it. And I feel that this is, you know, the most reliable way that I can reliably apply this methodology and so on and so forth. So you're really sort of picking up the way you've done something and boosting, you know, supporting your points and your opinions without necessarily saying the disingenuous stuff like, oh, well, yeah, he's made an error. He's done, yeah, he can't do that. that. That's never done when it's clearly something that some experts may take a position and may adopt a alternative methodology to yours. Um, but, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, for me, facilitating the trier of fact with being able to understand the facts and evidence is one of the best characteristics in a neutral report. So your presentation, the words you use, you know, not being inflammatory being unimpeachably neutral, those things add a certain level of quality that most judges will appreciate. Um, and I think some people have been playing on the sort of time crunch and hoping that, oh, well, the judge is not going to read this. This judge's docket is so backed up. And they just try to use inflammatory things and words in the reports or in testimony, 
hoping that someone wasn't paying attention or that the clerk, the judge's clerk, who oftentimes is the one that will read the reports first, doesn't pick up on something. Right. Right. And, and I think that, you know, in a lot of these situations, um, you know, recently I was on the stand and then they said, well, could you make an assumption of what the earnings were between the date of marriage and, and, and when this money came in? And I was like, well, judge, I don't have to make an assumption. So I always, I get asked the questions from the attorney and then I talk to the judge. Right. And so I say, judge, I don't have to make those assumptions because I, I actually reviewed the statements and I can tell you exactly how much those accounts made. And the attorney was like, well, but, but I just want you to tell me like what hypothetically it could have made. And I was like, yeah, but I don't have, I, I don't have to hypothetically guess we have the documents judge. Like if we want to pull them up, we could certainly pull them up. And again, you know, I could certainly respond to him in a very snarky manner and I could, and I could imply that he doesn't know because, you know, a strategy with an attorney is to showcase when they don't know something because attorneys always, you know, and, and it is, but I don't think it's a really good strategy because then it's sort of like you literally poked the bear and now they're going to come for you, which is, I mean, everything is, is useful in its own time. Um, but I think it's, it's making those assumptions. It's also concessions, you know, like I'll tell the attorney going into a deposition, I was like, you know, they have a kind of a point on this one area, but I said, there's no definitive guidance on it. And so they're taking a position. I'm taking a position, quite frankly, the valuation community is on each side. So I'm going to testify to that. And so if they asked me, well, could that person be right? Or could you be right? And I would say, well, you know, quite frankly, the valuation community is divided. And these are the reasons why I think that this position makes sense. And, and quite frankly, we've talked about this before. Judges rely on logic. Like you can present all the best data. But again, if you want to say that this cup of coffee is worth a million dollars, you're going to have to give me more than that this is a cup of coffee, right? You know, so I think that the judge would be like, well, that doesn't make sense. So then we have to layer it with the information, the fact pattern, the all of these types of things. So I think that, you know, this is nuanced stuff. I totally get it. But it's also information that I think I would have wanted to know. You know, when we, we, we always talked about, okay, make sure, I, I don't know, it, it almost seems superfluous, the things that we talked about of how to be a good expert as I've like gone through my career. You know, I've had to learn a lot of these things um, by seeing other experts do it that didn't work it backfired or something. Um, cause it, it is hard to be the better person and to not stoop down to, you know, the tactics that somebody could use on you. Um, but it is absolutely important. And in the standards, um, I think that I've seen people come for the standards and they don't know the standards. And so that's always, you know, a fun place to catch an attorney if they come for you with the standards, like I recently had a situation where they said I violated the standards and I was like, Oh my God, they don't even know the standards. Right. And so 
there's still a way that you can provide the information without you looking like the jerk. And at all costs, you kind of have to make sure that that happens. Um, because when it comes right down to it, like, is it, Zach, is it your money? Is it your money? No. Is this your case? No. Do you win cases? No. You know, so I think that we've just gotten a bigger ego as experts of like, well, I come in and I do what I do and you guys are good. No, we're just part of a team. We're part of a whole group. Um, but when, let's see, what other things? And this is, this, this goes towards this though, you know, like for us to remain neutral and, and, you know, even going so far as like, why do some experts not practice neutrality? Part of it is how we've been taught, but the other is that it is difficult to remain neutral because like you said, you have to go, you have to start at the report and create the neutrality in the report, right? But what other reasons is it important for us to stay neutral? Well, and let's not fool ourselves. There are some attorneys that will hire a particular expert because they know that they will not be neutral and they will say exactly what they want them to say. That's sort of the concept of a hired gun. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's been something that's not new news that exists. It's always existed in expert witness testimony. And sometimes it's uh, worse than others. But as far as the, 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 the various reasons that we may accidentally not be able to be neutral. It is sort of a primal thing to some extent, you know, because, you know, that, that reticular uh, activation system I was talking about, the, the thing that sort of, you know, bases your behavior as an individual is based upon your, your those fears and values and all of those things that trigger. And sometimes it's very easy to have a certain way of thinking that you've always done something a certain way and you block out all possible alternatives. And it's very hard to be unbiased, even when you're trying to be unbiased. And, and this is something that I think it naturally occurs because we literally formulate the way that we behave or the way we calculate something based upon our experience, our education, and all the things that form to go into form our expert opinions. But it's really important that you kind of constantly assess yourself, um, reassess yourself. Um, I know in my practice, I've been trying to eliminate some of the biases and skewed uh, that come in even uh, government data by eliminating like the, the sex bias. I try to create gender neutral damage calculations because I think that it's not going to be fair that somebody who was terminated because they were black and I use a black life table that has a lower life expectancy and yeah. it's going to result in a lower damage number. How is that fair? Same thing with when it comes to, you know, women and maybe the inequities in pay and things like that. You have to be careful with, with the way that you look at things. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it, you did something wrong in the past per se, you did the best you could based upon what everybody was doing, but to the extent you can sort of continually improve. Um, that, that's sort of the best way to, 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 in my view, to be. And don't be disingenuous. Some people, they don't really have any fundamental way that they do things or any reason why some of these experts will attack your work. They're just doing it because they were hired to do that. Right. Um, that's a reality that we have to be, we can't be naive. Um, 
Some attorneys will specifically, they have no intentions of getting to the any anything close to the truth or a potential right number or range of numbers. They're just going to retain someone for the sole purpose of attacking your credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so the best armor for that, in my experience, is to build un- fundamentally unimpeachably neutral approaches, unimpeachably neutral assumptions and ways of looking at things. And so that no matter what they ask you in deposition or in trial, or even no matter what another uh, an opposing expert says in a rebuttal report about you or your calculation, you've already thought of that. You've already, if you if you take a unbiased approach from the beginning, that's the best armor to deal with whatever comes your way in the future. Because just like whenever they try to antagonize you in court, you can kill them with kindness, be very nice and educate them. And you can do it and accomplish, you know, the, the whole, you know, educating them and, and kind of, you know, kind of revealing that the attorney didn't know what they were talking about. You can do that in a very nice way because they're an attorney. They know a lot about law and that's what they went to school for, but they may not know a lot about, you know, work life participation or anything like that. So you have to do your best to say, well, that's a good point. I even like to say that's a good question. It's a great question. <laughs> if, you, if you ever hear that, that's usually not good. But <laughs> you'll, you'll say, you know, that's a great question. And then you can elaborate for the court because this is not common knowledge. You wouldn't even be right in the courtroom or writing a report or deemed as an expert talking about this particular subject if it was common knowledge. So there are questions that are just kind of bad questions or show that they don't know what they're talking about, but you can educate them. That's And if you go into it and walk into the courtroom as if you're walking into a classroom, I mean, you'd be surprised at the butterflies that go away. And you'd be surprised at how effective you can come across if you do it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're one of those experts that doesn't do it that way and is just literally an advocate and, you know, likes to fib a little bit, you're going to be a nervous wreck all the time for the rest of your career. And you're probably going to have some problems later on in life. So um, this is all about mitigation for the most part. And if you take an un- unimpeachably neutral approach from the beginning and throughout, whether it be rebutting or dealing with rebuttal or testimony at deposition or trial, usually you're going to be in a better position and you're doing exactly what an expert is supposed to be doing, which is educating mm-hmm. the, the trier of fact about the facts and evidence. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And I think that, you know, we've talked about it before that realistically, another valuation person or testifying expert that's at your same kind of caliber doing your same type of work is really the best indicator of how well you're doing your work, right? Because if they do bring up points that you're like, hmm, I didn't think about that. Or I did consider that, but here's my logic of, of how I considered it. You know, those types of things I think do help make you better. Um, and I'm always an advocate for my position, right? Regardless of, I feel like if I were left on an island and the parties and the attorneys leave me, I'm able to still believe that opinion, right? And so, and, and if Zach comes along and takes a look at it and he's like, Oh, I would do some things different, but it's still reasonable. Then in my opinion, I kind of win, but you know, is there really a way for clients? Because when they come to us, they're like, I'm, I I need to know what this is worth. 
I need to know the value. I need to know what my claim is worth. I need to know what the lost profits were, what the lost wages were, you know, all of these things. But they're relying upon us to tell them a reasonable answer. So how do they know? Like, can they, is there a way for them to check if their expert is neutral? There are ways to check, but first of all, you want to assume that they want somebody that is neutral. Yeah, if true. You've ever, if you've ever tried to be neutral and you've had a client not like that characteristic about you, it's an interesting thing. Um, but you have to be able to, you know, the, if they're going to check the neutrality of your work, that's why it's important to be consistent. One, they can look at maybe other calculations and things that you've done in the past in other cases, you know, you calculated something a different way and and just touted how great that way was. And then you do it completely opposite or, or counterintuitively in this particular case. So being consistent, whether the expert is consistent, you can check their consistency. You can also just check the supportability of each and everything that they do, whether it be an assumption or the selection of a methodology or an approach. Um, documentation tends to save lives. And so as an expert, I would say document every decision you make and be able to explain it. Because if it's asked of you and you can't explain why you did what you did, that's how people get tossed out of cases. That's how you know Daubert challenges occur because this expert cannot explain why we should rely upon this particular thing. Same exact mm -hmm. documentation that Zach Myers relied upon and can explain as to why this is reliable. The other expert couldn't and therefore it didn't work. So attorneys need to look out for whether or not they support what they say and what they do, whether they do what they say, because <laughs> sometimes experts will even say that they did something and then not do it. And that goes both ways, whether you're looking at an expert that you've retained or an expert that opposing side has retained. You know, I do 50-50 plaintiff versus uh, defense work. And a lot of people don't see that because I get retained by a lot of defense attorneys that want me to look at another expert's report and not necessarily even have to, to put out a report. You just want to look at it and, and give them an honest assessment. And when you're doing that type of work, sometimes retaining an, uh, an expert on the side, even to take a second look at a uh, expert report either that your expert has already done or that an opposing expert has already done is well worth the money to do that because you know everyone has different perspectives and sometimes that can help uh, to see you know to tell whether or not the expert is being neutral um, it's really a, a slippery slope to some extent to be able to, to say whether someone is or isn't neutral it's normally really easy, though, to see when someone's just being a hothead and putting out unsupported speculative crap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you'll feel it in your gut, but, you know, it is tricky. It is very hard. And that's why it's important for us as experts to try our best to exude all the good things about being an expert, being unimpeachably neutral, not being this sort of hired gun type of expert. Because, for one, you're speaking for your industry. And if the industry doesn't trust expert witnesses, then that's going to be a bad thing. And some people already don't. Um, but at the same time, it's important for us to put on, to the best of our ability, our, our teaching hat. And if you look at your expert's report and it doesn't read like someone trying to educate somebody, that can be a problem and a sign that they're not really trying to educate. They're just trying to, you know, get away with something or, or try to... Uh, you know, they didn't have enough time to put into the expert report, therefore they couldn't support anything 
or testify to it. Um, the, it can really be a you can you can really set yourself up for failure if you try to take this overly advocated approach. It really can be bad. And if you're the expert, even if your attorney wanted you to do that, it can be a bad thing when the case doesn't go the way that they wanted it to, and they blame you for listening to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you you have to protect your credibility at all costs. But I think another way for clients to even check the neutrality of the expert work, experts work, in some capacity, we set the stage for that during the process. And in, in my mind, you know, because when I review a valuation or a calculation with an attorney or a client or something like that, I am running the numbers to see what Zach or really let's talk about, you know, uh, Bob, the paid hired gun. I want to know, like, what is what is where can you under reasonable terms make the value the highest? Where can you under reasonable terms make it the lowest? Like, where would some other expert come in? And I talk through with the client, like, you know, a 50% cap rate is not going to be reasonable in this scenario. Now, what happens if the other expert comes back with a 45% cap rate? I've already predicted and told them that that's unreasonable, right? So I've prefaced it by like, hey, I don't know what's going to come down the pipeline with the other expert. Like, I don't know them very well. Um, Or they could be from another area. I said, but if this shows up, like if they say that, you know, they're going to rely on 2015 data because it was the highest year and most successful year of the company, yet we're in 2021. Okay. You know, like I'm going to tell you, but we're looking at a lot of the same data. And so if I can prepare the attorney or the client, and then I say, okay, I know that this is the high and the low, but where I'm coming in is here. And this is why, right? And here's an area that I'm putting myself a little bit out, but I think I have a good reason for, and here are my reasons, right? Oh, well, that reason's not true. Okay, well, thank you. Okay, so so that's not going to be a good supporting factor. So we might not have a good support for that position, you know, And and then I will tell them when they try to push me to support that position, I'll also be like, you know, if I don't feel super comfortable about it, it the testimony is not going to be as good. And if the testimony is not as good, it's not going to really help you. So, you know, and we're only going to gain ground for $50,000. And I agree, that's a lot of money, but it's not going to gain us a million and it could lose us more. So I think even having those conversations with the client and attorney kind of prepares them for when the fool shows up, right? Um, Or somebody says that it's worth nothing, right? Because I could tell them, like, I can see how somebody could say that this is worth nothing, and this is how. I could see how somebody could say that this is worth 50 million, and this is how, right? It may not be my opinion, but I have to give them a frame of reference. Because if I say the value is a million, and the reasonable range is 800 to 1.2, right? And the other expert comes at 2 million or 500,000. I've already shown my client and my my camp how wrong that person is, 
right? And so I think we can do some of that. And that's, that's usually my, and I'm sure you do some of it for commercial cases, because you need to know, like, yeah. where are they going to push me? Where is it flimsy? You know, I, yeah, I like to say I'll go out on a limb, but it needs to be a nice thick limb that keeps, and I can only go out so far, right? I can only push myself so far that it's still in a reasonable assumption. And that's my own professional review process. Um, but I think that that's what, <clears throat> because I think that, again, you know, as experts, we have this, oh, sometimes we are in cases and it does get all consuming. They're big cases and they, they take a long time and we're in there for years. Um, but we also have to remember that the person that's going to continue to hire us is the attorney. So at any point that we're like, oh yeah, you know what? I'll take that position. I'll, I'll take a hit for the team. They know you've done it. They're going to ask you to do it on another case. Or when they're on the other side of you, they're going to say, do you remember when you kind of did it this way? And now you're doing it a completely different way. You know, if you don't think judges and attorneys talk or have listservs, that they literally communicate about experts on. If you don't have thick skin to have a time where an attorney that you actually know and like and work for talks bad about you because they've gotten so involved in the case and their position, you know, like these are the things that you kind of have to be prepared for because it is easier to be a hired gun. It's way easier. You don't have to say no to anybody. Yeah, I would imagine it would be. That's a good point. I mean, it's, it's, now it's it's probably not easier to testify because you would mm -hmm. be a nervous wreck, and it's a lot harder to lie than to tell the truth most of the time. It depends on what it is, but I think you're right. It, it, that is the easy approach. I mean, I've had, you know, I, I I've had clients that were really upset or maybe didn't quite understand why I do something in a neutral way, and they say, "Well, no, that's that's not a big deal." Just just do this and, and you know that sometimes it, it would be easier to just say you know what okay I'll just do this un you know supportable assumption um, but at the end of the day that's the worst possible thing you can do mm -hmm. um, and so I think you're, you're absolutely right there's not really um, <laughs> there's not sometimes there it, it's hard I know early on in my career it was very hard to communicate to the attorneys the value of unimpeachable neutrality. They have, they have to almost see it firsthand to and say, oh, well, yeah, he took that approach in the other case, and that, that did great for us. You know, right. they, they have to see it to really appreciate the value, and sometimes you have to just go through that process. You know, I have a lot of clients that are like former judges and things, and some of those are very good people to, to, to pick up if you can get them because they have been behind the bench, and they'll – they see the value in what you're bringing. Now, sometimes someone who hasn't been a judge and they've just been a trial attorney or whatever, or just the type of attorney that just gets cases and settles them, you know, those type of attorneys over time, they, it, they will learn to appreciate it because it is easier. And some attorneys don't want to, you know, uh, expert that is neutral because they just, I mean, it is a money thing to some extent, but there are some fantastic attorneys out there that, if you try your best to always be consistently neutral, they'll either be on the other side of you or have hired you and they'll see what where that gets them. Um, 
I know early on in my career it was very difficult because you will have instances where they don't understand or they want you to go a little bit further and they don't understand why you're not advocating or you know doing this sort of dog and pony show that they want you to do or talk about or speak to in your reports and that can be very difficult but mm -hmm. in time if you keep consistently being fair neutral consistent it pays dividends i mean you'll get cases where you'll be selected as a neutral expert um, and both parties will have no problems whatsoever with you being the neutral expert because they've worked with you before or seen your work and that's mm -hmm. a good position to be in mm -hmm. um, well, and that's what we were talking about kind of before this is, you know, what does it really mean to trust a testifying expert's professional opinion? Because the reality is what most people think, and it is sometimes true, is you could give the same set of circumstances to four different valuation professionals or testifying experts or, you know, damage consultants, and you're going to get four different answers you know, so how do we deal with that? And why would they be different? Like, what? why shouldn't they just be the same damn number, right? That's what everybody wants to know. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that they're both lying either. I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, everyone's, like we said before, everyone's experiences help to form their behaviors. So in a particular situation, there are some, sometimes it's easy and it's very human to only see what you want to see, okay, as an expert, especially if your job title is an expert, sometimes it is hard to think any way other than your way, or you've automatically, you know, you automatically associate a particular pattern of behavior or a particular methodology with a particular type of situation. And, you know, it's easy for two different experts that have the same exact fact pattern focus on different things. Usually the difference in one number from another number is the, the thing that they focus on or put more emphasis on the most, whether it be a growth rate, a discount rate, a capitalization rate, um, a base of earnings, uh, you know, a benefit stream, things like that. And so, you know, I, I know one of the things that I like to do is I like to reconcile whenever I am approached with a rebuttal or even just approached to rebut someone else's work, the, one of the best things to do is just to find out where the differences are and how impactful they are. Because it's one thing to say that, you know, well, his growth rate is too high. Well, it's another thing and a more helpful and edu edu from an educational standpoint to actually see exactly how much the growth rate impacts the number that they're getting to. And so, you know, that's why you'll, you'll see sometimes it's, it's not what you think. Sometimes it's really not just the growth rate that's the reason why there's two vastly different numbers. Sometimes it's the base of earnings. Sometimes it's the discount rate. And you can actually quantify those things. Um, and one of the best things to do, whether you're asked to rebut someone's work or uh, someone's rebutting your work, is to see if they actually provide their own opinion of, of damages or value or whatever. It's a very helpful exercise to just try to recalculate and reconstruct what they've done so that you can understand fully from a quantitative standpoint where the differences lie. Um, yeah. Because the, the subjective sort of more qualitative stuff, that's sometimes, you know, a never ending argument that there's not a, neither person is right or wrong. But quantifying it first helps. 
uh, at least in my experience. That's one of the first things that I do. And I've even had expert reports where I've rebut someone else's by showing exactly what they did and reconstructing what they did and making a model of what they did and then show the impact step by step of, well, here's what happens if we change this to this, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that can help and that's educational to the court. Well, and that is a really good point because, and I've, and I do it religiously now, right? In the past, sometimes I would do it, sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes I would look at a rebuttal report or another, even another expert's report. And I would just start to critique it and be like, oh, well, if I change this, what I've changed this. I actually now, and it may be a little overkill, but whatever, I will replicate their models. And more often than not, there is a critical mathematical error a critical mathematical error. And to me, it's like, okay, I'm going to first, my first issue is going to be like, mathematically, it's not correct. And then I'm going to leverage off of that. But like, even this, the most simple thing, doing that and and not, or, you know, you because you could hand calculate it too. For me, it's just easier to re-punch it in because then I can change the metrics and I can know the impact, but you've really identified like a huge pet peeve for me, which is especially in the valuation community or in expert witness world and, and in negotiating settlements is that it drives me crazy when an expert spends an incredible amount of time on something that doesn't move the needle. And we're having huge discussions on things that aren't moving the needle. So I'll be like, okay, we're, we're arguing a 1% change in the cap rate or the discount rate or the weighted average cost of capital, does everybody understand that it's only going to move the needle $20,000? And currently right now, we are charging $5,000 an hour with all of the people, experts and attorneys that are discussing this topic. And I know from, you know, a maybe a theory standpoint that, you know, we talk about a lot of things in theory at conferences and things, but when it comes to actually put it into play, you need to be of value. You need to be of value to the process, but not making work out of nothing. And I think that that's why sometimes attorneys get a little distracted because they're like, well, this is a really big point. I was like, no, it's not. It doesn't even move the needle. Like you want to talk about things, talk about the adjustments to the cash flow that you have one person adjusting at a hundred thousand, you have another person adjusting at five hundred thousand. That's an issue, and that's subjective. There is no book that we look at to say, "Well, we had to adjust this." Like that's all us going in and looking at the numbers. Um, So I think there's a lot to unpack there. But again, doing your job is just, are they mathematically correct? Did they provide an opinion? You know, recently I had to rebut an expert report that had no opinion. And then in the testimony, they said, now in your rebuttal, you said that the person had no opinion. And I was like, correct. (laughs) He said, did you read the report? Yes, I did well, don't you think he had some opinions in there? And I was like, he had some assumptions, but I didn't see an actual opinion. And then he went and I said, but maybe you could show me where the opinion is. And he was like, you can't ask me questions. And I was like, okay. But, you know, and then 
sometimes my attorney will come back and be like, Hey, Melissa, can I ask you that question about that thing that you were talking about? You know, and then we'll redirect it or something like that. But it's the same process. You know, it's, it, it, we, we could talk all day, but we've, we've provided such good information. What is maybe at the conclusion of this? Because realistically, I think we've just told people some of our own horror stories or our own learning lessons. Um, but what is some of your biggest advice for experts who are starting? Because right now we do kind of have a glut in experts. We have a lot of experts that are older that may be retiring and we don't have a lot of newer, younger experts coming into play. So if somebody wanted to get into it, which I think all people should, it's very lucrative, fun. It's always different. But what would you be your advice for some of those experts? Start a habit of continuous learning now. Because if you stop learning at any point in time, and you just become set in your ways, and this can happen even if you just start doing nothing but teaching and don't actually sit down and take other people's courses. And, and this can happen 20 years down the road. Start learning now. Start to build, uh, start a habit of building your intellectual capital each and every year. Uh, take a diverse uh, mix of courses. Read a lot. I mean, if you're going to be an expert, you have to be well-read. It's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It's an oxymoron to be a, a, a non-underwell-read uh, expert. You have to be well-read. If you're not well-read, um, you can get called on it. So start now the process of taking courses. Um, I know I'll be teaching uh, Unimpeachable Neutrality at NACVA conference in December 14th, as well as the Chicago chapter of Forensic Expert Witness Association on December 9th virtually. Um, those sort of things. Those will actually help you to um, understand, you know, the past, the present, and where the future of expert witnesses uh, uh, in your particular field are, is going. And, and I think that you can become easily become obsolete when you stop learning. That mm -hmm. goes for the 20-year expert or the two-year expert. It doesn't end when you get your credential. It doesn't end when you have your first case or big settlement or something, you have to continuously learn and try to build upon your knowledge base. And the moment you stop doing that, you can very easily become irrelevant and obsolete, or what you're doing can become obsolete. So you have to keep a pulse on everything. And the best way to do that is by taking continued professional education, watching podcasts like this, this podcast, I watch all kinds of episodes where I'm just like, oh, this is this is great stuff. And that's one of the best things about this podcast is because you want to get a diverse mix of, of a learning experience, whether it provides CPE or not. And you want to just hear from other experts and hear from other states even. Uh, you know, I love hearing stuff from other experts in other states and, and around the country and the globe even because, you know, talking to an expert that does what you do in England is a pretty interesting conversation, I can tell you. Mm -hmm. um, so things like that and, and just always stay open-minded and be willing to take advice and listen to experiences of other people because that expands your knowledge base. It helps you to become less biased and more aware of the, the considerations and things that you need to be aware of and take into consideration. And that's one of the best things about this podcast and one of the best things about just, you know, getting out there and networking is you hear different perspectives and their basis for it and their experience. And that's, extremely valuable. I mean, you can teach 
your kids in a lot better situation by telling them a story sometimes than just telling them not to do something. Mm-hmm. That's because they can feel it. They can see it. So talk mm-hmm. to people. Get their experience. Don't just necessarily go for what this one person is telling you, but why are they telling you? Listen, listen to their experience. Listen to why they do it and listen to a diverse mix of opinions because diversity just inherently will make make you more educated, more well-rounded, and more well-read, and, and be able to take on the opposing expert rebuttal or questions from a, an attorney just trying to get you upset on the stand or at a deposition. Yeah, I think there are a lot of lessons that you don't necessarily need to learn on your own. <clears throat> um, and the consistency, although it seems like, oh, you guys are just talking about simple things. The consistency, I like to say, be consistent until you change and then be consistent that you change. So recently I testified to something on the stand and they said, do you always testify to this answer? And I said, yes. And they said, always. And I said, yes. And I'm consistent with that. And they're like, you recommend this to your, I said, no, I don't do that. But this is how I testify for this particular issue. And, and I think that, you know, or I've said before, like there's certain analyses that I don't do and they're like, you never do it. And I was like, no, I typically have the attorney run the child support or something, you know, and, and then I incorporate the number and they're like, you never run child support numbers. You know, you could. And I was like, yeah, cause it's a calculator. So I figured they input whatever they want into it because there's no judgment and then the number, you know, so <clears throat> And, and, you know, sometimes it's like incredulous. It's like, oh, how could you, you know, or, and, and things like that. But I think that that's me being consistent. That's me. If you talk to that attorney, that's the same thing that I testified to in that particular case. And so I think that your, you know, what we talked about at the beginning is trust is earned and it is built upon. And so you can make mistakes in this field and you can learn and be like, okay, I'm not going to do that again. Um, but I also think that you should take on cases that, you know, like are kind of smaller and then build upon it because I've seen people that kind of take on more than they can handle. And it will be a case that pretty much breaks their career, right? Not breaks their career from like, no one's going to work for them. It breaks them internally about the process, right? And it makes it so that they're like, oh, testifying is horrible. Like they came for me. And I'm always like, well, did they come for you because you put yourself too far out there? Or did they come for you? Because if somebody comes for you and you did it, what you thought is right, you do not react, Right. It's sort of like if somebody comes to you and then says something that you knew was there, but you hope no one found, then you're like, ah, shit, you know, like, oh, you found it kind of thing. So I think I think in those types of situations, you're constantly and the attorneys are who will continue to hire you. And so they will watch how you do, you know, like I'm even it's not easy to do, but I am even trying, I try to be even consistent with pricing. I try to be even consistent, like at the end of an entire process, you know, was it still a reasonable price to be paid? Because I can't just go after each client and be like, oh, you have a lot of money. I'll take all your money. The attorney is going to be like, oh, I see what you did there. And you didn't do it over here, you know, so everybody's watching and you have to be okay with that. 
And then that's where the consistency, if you consistently show up a certain way, then they'll be like, yep, he tells it like it is. Yep. Zach just tells me the truth and we can't get him. We, and to the point where I now know there are times when attorneys do not hire me and I'm perfectly okay with it. Right. <laughs> because they're looking for something that I consistently will not provide. And I'm perfectly happy with it. And you have to be perfectly happy that they will self-select you, but, but you get to choose how they self-select you. You get to choose the times that they know that they want you there. So they, I know that they want me there when they want the right number. Great. I love it. I know that they will not call me if they know they have a crappy case and they need to like basically make up numbers because there's plenty of other people that will do that. But as we, and you and I have talked about this, change how this is done, hopefully we won't have that happening as much. But let's tell everybody about you and your practice and how they can get a hold of you. Because like we talked about at the beginning, business valuations is one of it, but there's a whole bunch of testimony and litigation out there. Um, so let's get a little bit more about Zach. Sure. I mean, a lot of people may know me for the valuation side of it. Um, you know, I've been the former chair of the NACBA Standards Board and things like that. But I also do a lot of personal injury, commercial damage litigation type work. I do 100% expert witness work. I'm not afraid to say that, and I'm proud to say that. Um, I don't do audits or taxes. I do damages, valuations, uh, forensic accounting, uh, pension, retirement, divorce, all of that. The best way to probably find me is on LinkedIn, I would say, or just Google see Zachary Myers, you'll find plenty of things. Um, but uh, I'll be teaching, I think I said earlier, December 14th and December 9th, December 9th for um, uh, the chapter of Forensic Expert Witness Associations, the Chicago chapter. And then on December 14th uh, at NACLA's virtual conference, you'll probably find links on my LinkedIn page if, uh, or my website, czacharymyersplc.com. Um, but hopefully um, I'll hear from you guys and it's, it's great talking to you here. I love this podcast. This podcast is fantastic. <laughs> I love everything Thanks, about Zach. it. The whole <laughs> library. Yeah, I would highly suggest everyone check out the entire library of work. It's not not just Zach Myers, but everything. I mean, there's just some great interviews. So I would highly oh, that's awesome. your, your, your website. Thanks, Zach. Well, and it's interesting because I think <clears throat> the couple things that you're teaching um, coming up and, and talking about, um, I do highly recommend, but I also think that people need to think beyond it. So yes, it's getting information about, you know, being a better expert and doing all of this work, but you also have to remember the other people that are going to be at that conference or attending mm -hmm. that session. Cause usually those are other people that are doing really good work in the litigation setting and trying to continue to up their game. And those are people to connect with too, because the reality is, <clears throat> we're only as good as we're helping others in our field. And I think that, you know, we've talked about this before, but if you stay in your lane and you do the best you can every day, you have no competition. And so that's what we're here for is to help others make a good living out of this, because I think it is a good living, right? You know, and it's fun. So, um, but if you have any questions about, uh, being unimpeachable, please reach out to Zach or, um, you know, you can, we'll probably put a link to the article and things, but, and Zach, when you write something else, you know, you're always welcome back. <laughs> Glad 
enjoy it. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Zach. We'll see you soon.